You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. If you got your Bible, turn it on uh, and go to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in Habakkuk uh, chapter 3 today. At our church, we love expository preaching, which means we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And uh, we are finishing Habakkuk today. And um, Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, So it's toward the end of the Old Testament if you're having trouble finding it. Um, I'll try to stall a little bit while you try to get there. Um, But we're we're finishing that today, and then on Easter we're jumping back into Peter's epistles. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1 next week. But this year we're going to preach actually four of the 12 minor prophets. And uh, what I love about um, this Old Testament prophecy is it's it's a little bit challenging to preach sometimes. And, um, you know, Jeremy tackled one of the hardest texts in Habakkuk last week looking at the curses pronounced on the Babylonian Empire, right? Like if you're a preacher and you want a really dynamic sermon, you want like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. You don't want like woe to the Chaldeans. That's a little harder to unpack. But the, the more we dig into Habakkuk, I think the more you see um, how God is showing us his faithfulness and his grace. And <clears throat> we've named the series Voicing Frustrations. And there's a great grace in this because Habakkuk uh, laments and grieves and complains to God through his prayers in this book. And it's shown us, as we've been studying this, it's shown us that it is okay, and I believe the Bible actually encourages you to, um, to vent to the Lord in your prayer, to be honest with God about your emotions in prayer. And so uh, many of us have seasons of life, many of you are in those seasons right now where you're suffering or you're hurting, um, and you have these emotions of sadness or maybe even anger. And sometimes Christianity just feels like the, the goal is for us to suppress all those feelings. And that's not at all the, the message that the Bible gives. Matter of fact, Habakkuk voices lots of frustrations to the Lord. And we arrive at chapter 3, the end of the book, and I'm going to cover the whole chapter today. But at the end of the book, you see Habakkuk's attitude change. And so at the beginning, he is basically complaining to God about the sin that he sees around him. Um, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire had been overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. There was all kinds of idol worship going on in the southern kingdom of Judah where Habakkuk lived during his day. And uh, the Babylonian Empire was literally at the door of Judah ready to overtake and conquer them. Habakkuk goes to the Lord complaining about all these things, basically saying, Lord, do you know what's going on? Have you fallen asleep? Are you missing what's happening down here? He says, sin is rampant. There are nations getting ready to conquer us. Uh, We need your help. And the Lord answers him. And Habakkuk complains again in chapter 2. And the Lord answers him again. And the Lord ultimately promises in chapter 2 five different curses that he is going to let fall down on the Chaldeans or the the Babylonian Empire. Things that the Lord promises. And in chapter 3, we have Habakkuk's response to that. Um, The Lord basically says, you are going to be conquered by Babylon, but their empire will not last forever. Um, I will bring my people back into salvation. And so this prayer that we see in chapter 3, I hope can challenge you. I want to show you three things in today's sermon. Number one is that prayer changes us. um, And secondly, that prayer causes us to worship. Um, It brings about or it stirs up worship within us. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at how prayer comforts us. So let's jump into the first one. Um, just a, a shorter point in today's sermon, but I want you to see how, um, how prayer should operate because we tend to look at prayer as, as a, an effort to change uh, God's mind. Um, <clears throat> my kids often come to me with 
um, their suggestions of where they want to eat. Ultimately, I don't care because I like food and I like what I like. And when they come to me wanting Chick-fil-A, I'm not trying to listen to that garbage, right? Uh, I don't, I'm, listen, Chick-fil-A is overrated and overpriced. And I griped about this in the first service and I got some backlash from the, from the faithful Christians of the 9 a.m., but I'm gonna stand my ground on this. I just think they're fake when they say my pleasure. I don't believe them. And um, I just, I'm just not a big Chick-fil-A fan. But my kids all the time, they know that dad doesn't like Chick-fil-A and they're all the time begging to go to Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, you know we're gonna go to Qdoba? It's where we always go. Like, I don't know why you're trying to change my mind, kids. And they're like, let's go to Chick-fil-A, dad. And they're begging me. And you know, every now and then mom will take them and I feel betrayed. But, um, but they, they come to me with the attitude of we're gonna change uh, the Father's mind. And, and most of us, if we're honest, we view prayer that way. We're going to go to the Father with what we want, what we think is best, and we're going to change his mind from whatever thing that is befallen upon us, and we're going to change his mind from that and convince him that that's, uh, that's not the best course of action. I don't know if you guys have spent much time praying or not, but as a Christian who prays, and I've done this, tried to change God's mind, I've learned that that's usually not that effective. Um, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1 shows us how Habakkuk's prayer goes from changing God's mind to instead acknowledging God's sovereignty and his plan. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth, and which is, that's a, that's a Hebrew word that basically is, it, it explains a musical notation. Um, it's a, probably a, a dirge or a, like a, a grief song. Um, and so as they're awaiting for their own conquering from Babylon, um, they, they, they would sing this song of Habakkuk that he wrote, this dirge or this grief song. And it begins in verse two, and he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, remember at the beginning of Habakkuk, his whole mindset is like Chick-fil-A. Like, I'm going to change God's mind into, like, Caleb, positive and encouraging stuff. And he's going to relent from all this disaster that, that we see coming, and he's going to change his mind. But by the end of the book, he's acknowledged that God's wrath is coming upon Israel. And he doesn't say, take your wrath away anymore. Instead, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Man, what if we could change our thinking in our prayers instead of, God, remove this cup from me. God, remove all the, the heartache of life. Remove all the difficulty of life. Can you take everything away that's difficult and make my life easy, God? What if our mindset was changed instead to say, God, give me mercy and grace through what you've set before me. God, mold me into what you want me to be through the trials and the circumstances of life because, Lord, I trust in your sovereignty and I trust that you're doing something. See, that's what Habakkuk's attitude had changed to. He began the book with complaints. Chapter one, verse two, he said, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear me? Can you hear the sarcasm in his voice? How long will I cry for help and you're not hearing or cry violence and you will not save? But by the end of the book, instead, Habakkuk is accepting the Lord's plan that wrath is going to come, calamity is going to enter his nation, and he doesn't ask God anymore to remove the coming wrath. Instead, he asks the Lord to remember mercy. You see, what happened in Habakkuk should happen in all of us. That in his quest to change God's mind, he realized that that was a fruitless attempt. And instead, his own mind had been changed. You see, good and godly prayer changes your mind, not God's mind. 
And, and when, we, when we grasp that, it will dynamically change the way that we pray because we'll go to God, first of all, acknowledging his goodness and his sovereignty. And then secondly, saying, not, not change from your plan, God, but, but put me in your plan and let me be okay with that. And so we see prayer uh, changes us. The second thing we see, this is the longer point of today's sermon, uh, is that prayer causes worship. This is the main thing you see in Habakkuk's prayer song is that it leads him into worship. I just want you to think about that first of all is that most of the worship songs that we sing as a church are prayers. Prayer is anything where you're speaking to God, directed to God. And so most of the songs we sing are prayer songs that we are singing to our Savior, singing to God. Also in chapter three, what you see is called a theophany. Uh, which, which if I could just define that simply, it's an appearance of God or it's a personal encounter uh, with deity. And so you see Habakkuk um, having this appearance of God in chapter three. Now we would tend to read this and think that it's just uh, like a revelation of words, but I would argue that it's a revelation of vision. Um, and I'd get that from Habakkuk 1.1. 1, 1. The, the very opening of the book says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. It wasn't just something he heard. This isn't just something that God spoke to him, but rather he saw this. And so um, let, me, let me outline this in an OCD way for you note takers. Um, three through seven, verses three through seven in this song is what Habakkuk saw, the theophany. What he actually, I think the Lord revealed this to him visually. This is what he saw in verses three through seven. And in verses eight through 15, we see Habakkuk's response to what he saw. Okay, so let's look at what he saw in verses three through seven. Um, it says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth he looked and shook the mountains. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now, Habakkuk sees this kind of terrifying, I mean, honestly, just a kind of a terrifying picture of God. Um, and, and as he receives this vision, he sees the Lord, uh, Habakkuk describes where he comes from. It says he comes from Timon and Mount, Tur Mount Paran. Now, this is, it loses its relevance because we're not a Jewish audience, um, but Timon and Paran both describe southern areas in the perspective of Israel and where Habakkuk was. Uh, Timon was, a, was an ancient city um, that, that kind of became synonymous in Hebrew language with the south. The best way I could explain it is if you get on Interstate 64 from Milton and you, head, and you turn uh, right to go east, what city is named there? Charleston, right? Um, the most immediate exit is Hurricane, but it doesn't say Hurricane, it says Charleston because it's a bigger city and so it becomes synonymous with heading east. In the same way, if you turn left, you see the city of what? Huntington, when you go west. And so you kind of have those marker cities to give direction. In the same way in Habakkuk's time, Timon was a synonymous with south. And Paran described the wilderness in the south that actually the Israelites wandered in after they were set free from Egypt. And so you see uh, uh, Habakkuk describing God as coming from the south. And you say, well, what's that mean? What's that matter? Well, notably, as the Lord is coming up from the south, Babylon was coming 
from the north to conquer. And as Babylon was coming in from the north, remember, uh, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They're coming from the north southward to uh, conquer Israel. And we see the Lord coming to meet them in his promised land. And I think this is signifying that the Lord is uh, aware of what's happening. He's going to meet the evil people of the Babylonians right where he promised to do so. And as Babylon will invade Israel, so will the Lord. Now, most scholars also call this a theophany of history, which means that what God is doing, he's kind of pulling back the curtains and he's showing Habakkuk something that happened in the past. Um, and I think he's showing Habakkuk what happened in the book of Exodus. If you ever went to Sunday school and you had the flannel graphs and you know the characters up on the wall with your Sunday school teacher, you probably remember the story of Exodus where God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God raises up Moses and Aaron to uh, be, be spokespersons for the people of God. They go to Pharaoh. They say, let my people go. He says, no, God sends 10 plagues, remember? Uh, he sends these 10 plagues as, as uh, sovereign signs that Egypt will let his people go. And then ultimately they do flee Egypt and God parts the Red Sea through Moses. They, go, they cross the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian army follows, God closes the Red Sea on them and drowns Pharaoh's army in the sea. They then proceed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, ultimately culminating with them um, in the book of Joshua entering the promised land. I think this is what God is pointing Habakkuk back to. I think he's visually and literally showing him the Exodus. Now you may say, well, why would God do that? Well, I think he's pointing back to what happened at Sinai, where God gave them his law, where God gave them the Ten Commandments in the wilderness. There's Sinai language all through these verses. The splendor covered the heavens in verse 3. Verse 4 says that the power was veiled. I think this is a look back to when Moses saw the Shekinah glory of God and had to put a veil over his face because his face shone. Verse 5 describes pestilence and plague following the Lord. I think it's a reference to the plagues that, that fell upon uh, the nation of Egypt. These lands of Cush and Midian are mentioned, referring to nations that surrounded Israel in the wilderness. Cush, by the way, was an ancient colony of Egypt uh, where Moses found his wife. Moses' wife was an African woman uh, called a Cushite. Here's the point. I think the Lord is showing this to Habakkuk to remind him that he saved his people in Exodus, and he would also save his people in exile. God's saying, haven't I been faithful already, Habakkuk? What makes you think I won't be faithful right now? And I just want you to apply this to your heart this morning. Have you seen the Lord be faithful? If you've repented of sin, has he, has he been faithful to save you from this, the despair and depravity of your sin? If God has been faithful then when you enter into suffering and trials and tribulation, don't you dare think that he's going to stop being faithful then. He's saying, Habakkuk, and he's saying to you, son and daughter of God, I've always been faithful. I'm being faithful right now, and I always will be faithful. Maybe you've had an Exodus-type experience and God has brought you through great things. And you don't like to think about maybe after the Exodus, there's also an exile you know, like sometimes we use the saying, when it rains, it pours. We don't like to acknowledge the fact that trouble seems to come in waves. But if it does happen, I think this scripture shows us that God will continue to be with us in the trial and weather the storm with us and for us. You see, sometimes even though we've been through hard things, we fear the future. And by the way, maybe you haven't yourself been through 
certain difficult things, but this is why God has placed you in his church so that you can have people around you who have been through all those sorts of messes and can testify to the grace of God to carry them through. And not only, by the way, the people that live in your generation, but the church throughout the ages and in God's redemptive history, he has brought them through. And we have the stories in scripture and the stories of history to show that the Lord has always been faithful. So why would we be faithless in the midst of our trial? If you're facing something you never have, God has brought people through times as bad as that and maybe even worse than that. And he's showing Habakkuk his faithfulness. Now let's look at Habakkuk's response in verses 8 through 15. Again, for you nerdy note takers, um, I'll even alliterate this. In 8 through 11, you see um, God's work in nature. And in 12 through 15, you see God's work in the nations. And Habakkuk responds in this way. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in these areas. He says, God, you're sovereign over nature, and God, you're sovereign over the nations. And it's an expression from Habakkuk of trust. As he looks in nature, verses 8 through 11, he says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation... You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. So this section, again, focuses mainly on nature. There's a lot about water in this section. And remember, this is poetry in Hebrew. In your Bible, it should be kind of lined out in, in poetic form. And rivers could be translated in Hebrew as just currents of water. I don't think it's just talking about rivers. It's talking about water moving all about the earth. Um, and it's showing God's sovereignty over those things. Verse 9 specifically talks about splitting the earth with rivers. Um, and I think it's meant to take the reader back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, the very beginning of your Bible, where God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And so what Habakkuk is responding in and what he's showing through inspiration of the Spirit is that the chaos of water wasn't only present in creation, but also in, in thematic ways continually. So uh, in in creation, God parts water. In the flood of Noah's day in Genesis 6, God parts water after the flood to give Noah dry land to come and offer sacrifices on. And then God parts the Red Sea in the Exodus to allow his people to pass through, which is compared to baptism in the New Testament. And not only in the Old Testament, but Jesus would calm the seas of water in his ministry. And by the way, Jesus would walk upon water in his ministry. And it, I think it's showing just the cosmic reality that God is in control of all things. That's a comforting fact, church. And the Psalm of Habakkuk shows God's majesty. If he's, if he's majestic over stars and sun and moon and water, then he's sovereign over our lives too. And again, I think it specifically points back to Mount Sinai and kind of the cosmic things that happened there. The earthquakes and the sun and the moon have signs. But I think what Habakkuk may have not even realized as he penned this vision down is that it also looks forward. That the cosmic signs of Mount Sinai would be fulfilled in a greater way in the cosmic signs of Mount Calvary. On another mountain, 
Um, after Habakkuk was dead and gone, nature would crumble at God's power as he sacrificed his only begotten son to pay for your sins. The earth would quake. The sun would darken as Jesus died as the payment for our sins to purchase eternal life for a sinner like me. You see, God shows his salvation through his control over all things, the universe. And not only is God sovereign over nature, he's also sovereign over nations, showing that he's the rightful king, the self-sacrificing king that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey so that he could be sacrificed to inaugurate him and coronate him as the true and righteous king. Habakkuk reflects on his sovereignty over nature and then in nations in verses 12 through 15, he says, God, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. I love this like heavy metal imagery in this worship song. We need more of that, right? We need more of that collective as we sing. Um, we need to sing about laying our enemies bare from thigh to neck. Um, it just makes me want to praise the Lord. Verse 15 says, You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And as weird as it is for, for us to sing this kind of heavy metal type language, it was very normative of people of Habakkuk's day who witnessed war all around them to trust in the God who was greater than all their uh, military enemies. And Habakkuk had already been told that Babylon was coming to conquer them and that they would be exiled. But he was also told that Babylon would be defeated by a greater king, that Babylon would fall to the sovereign Lord. Now, nations had already fallen. Again, pointing back to God's prior faithfulness, Egypt had fallen. The Canaanites had fallen as they entered into the promised land. And again, I think a good idealistic interpretation of Habakkuk's vision here is that in the future for Habakkuk, that Babylon would ultimately fall. Even further than that, the Roman Empire would ultimately fall. And I think even on after that, no empire will stand before a great and holy king, Jesus. And so, again, Habakkuk trusts God's faithfulness from the past for his present and for his future. So because of the exodus, he could have faith in the exile. And future generations could have faith in the eschatos, which is Greek for end times. That, that if, if God was faithful in the exodus, faithful in the exile, then, then all generations could be faithful through to the end because God will continue to be faithful. And again, I'm not even sure that Habakkuk fully realized this, but he's prophesying a greater nation, a greater kingdom that would come and ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. I want you to turn your attention to verse 13 and look at it closely with me. First of all, it begins with, you went out. Uh, God is not a God who just sits on a throne decreeing things, but God is a personal God. Um, Jesus in his incarnation comes to be born as a human, putting on flesh the, the eternal deity of Jesus, the God-man puts on flesh to save us. That was his mission. And not only does he come and put on flesh, but he rides into Jerusalem that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, that he willingly goes into where he knows he will ultimately be killed to die for your sins. He's a God who goes out for salvation. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people. And the second part of that sentence says, for the salvation of your anointed. Now it's important that we remember the language of the Bible. 
The New Testament's written in Greek. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And it's important to look at this because sometimes we lose it in translation as we translate it into English. But in Hebrew, the, the language that Habakkuk originally wrote this in, salvation of your anointed is two Hebrew words, yesha, Mashiach. And, and, and what that means, yesha is the root word in the name Joshua. It's also the root word in the Hebrew name Yeshua. Um, and so transliterated into more modern Hebrew would be Yeshua, Messiah, or into the New Testament Greek, it would be Jesus Christos, or translated into our English, Jesus Christ. Jesus said after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he got his disciples and he said, all scripture is about me. Luke 24, 27. Jesus says, every part of the Bible is looking to him. All the Old Testament is pointing us toward Jesus. And so it can be easy for us to look at a book like Habakkuk and say, how is this pointing us to Jesus? But in verse 13, as we look at Yesha, Mashiach, we see Jesus Christ in Habakkuk 3.13, and Jesus is named salvation. That's why Jesus has that name. If you don't know what salvation is, it's deliverance from destruction. And Jesus came. He is a God who went out to accomplish salvation for wretched sinners like you. Praise be to God that he went out on a mission to deliver us from the destruction that awaited us in our sin. The second half of verse 13 says that Yeshua, Messiah, would crush the head of the house of the wicked. Again, I think it's um, talking about Egypt in the Exodus. I think it's talking about Babylon in the exile. I think it's talking about Rome in the future sense as Jesus would be put to death on a cross. But supremely, I think that it's speaking to Jesus crushing the head of Satan. That promise from Genesis 3.15 where God speaks to Satan, the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. The, the, the word bruise means crush. He's saying the offspring, the Messiah, the anointed one, Yeshua, will crush your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Satan will influence nations to rise, but Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah King. Now, all that is very exciting to me as a New Testament believer, but maybe it was lost a little bit on Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk's like, yeah, Lord, I acknowledge that you're sovereign and good and in control of all things, but Lord, I'm also scared. And I think that's where we can really resonate with a guy like Habakkuk. Because if we're honest, we have times where we want to complain to God about our circumstances. If we're honest, we have times where we're really confused by our circumstances or where we're really fearful of our circumstances. And that's where prayer comforts us. God longs for you to cast your burdens and your cares upon him in prayer. Because he's not just a conquering military king, but he's a loving, personal savior of you. I want you to feel the dread as we look at prayer comforting us in Habakkuk 3.16. The language that Habakkuk used is powerful. It's poetic, but, but it's powerful. Look at verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. I think this is a reference to the Babylonians literally being at the, at the door of Israel. Some scholars think historically at the time that Habakkuk was writing this, that maybe even the Babylonians had already crossed the borders into the, the nation of Judah. And so maybe he could even physically hear the, the, the horses and the chariots and the swords 
coming into his city. He said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Can you feel the dread and the fear in Habakkuk? But look at his response. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. You see, Habakkuk's never been shy about showing his true feelings to God. That's a theme in voicing frustrations that we see throughout the book. But what you see here is that Habakkuk has a newfound trust in the sovereign God, and that's a good thing. God has raised his eyes to something higher and better than his immediate circumstances. My mother's mother, I knew her by Nana, God rest her soul, worst driver I ever knew. Absolute horrible driver. Before I'd ever gotten behind the wheel of a car, I knew she was a bad driver. And Nana, Nana the reason was because Nana taught herself to drive. That's a bad idea. Kids, listen to me. You should always have a responsible adult teach you to drive. Don't teach yourself. But Nana taught herself, and she would hit the brake with her left foot and the gas with her right foot. Sometimes she'd do it at the same time, too. And... <laughs> We grew up out Trace Creek in Lincoln County. It's a one-lane holler road. And so when you meet an oncoming vehicle, it's always like an awkward interaction. Somebody's got to get two tires in the grass or in the ditch or whatever. And, but Nana would not do that. She was like, no, I don't care if you got to back halfway down the holler. Like, you're backing up and you're getting over for me. I'm not doing that because she was a terrible driver. But her problem was she wouldn't look at, uh, at, at, like to her side. She could have a pull-off on her side. She could have one just a short distance behind her, but she wasn't backing up. Rather, she just only focused on the immediate things right in front of her. She would freak out when she would like pass someone's driveway and there was a car in the driveway. She'd like, it was like it snuck up on her all of a sudden. She would freak out like there was suddenly a car there, but it had been there and no one was in it or whatever. She'd like holler at it and stuff. It was always funny for me. But the reason that she was a bad driver, if you ever did driver's ed, you know you're supposed to lift your eyes and look further out, right? You're supposed to scan further down the road and see the bigger picture rather than just focusing on what's immediately in front of your car. And this is what God does for Habakkuk. He lifts his eyes, and not just Habakkuk, by the way. He does this in all of Scripture. What we see in the depravity of humanity is we always tend to focus on the immediate. We always tend to focus on what's immediately in front of us. What are we dealing with today? Maybe what are we dealing with tomorrow? but we rarely lift our eyes to what God is doing throughout eternal redemptive history. And it's natural for us, right? It's natural for us. You, you have tragedy in your family. You have death in your family. You have uh, diagnoses of cancer or some, some detrimental thing like that, or you have fear or anxiety or depression or financial struggles. It is easy for us to lower our eyes to what's immediately in front of us, but God in his sovereignty as he pulls back the curtain for Habakkuk is saying, look at the bigger picture, Habakkuk. Look at what I've always done. Look at what I'm doing right now and look at what I always will do. I am faithful. And this is where prayer comforts us. And this is why Habakkuk was able to be terrified and say, Lord, there's rottenness in my bones. My lips are quivering. I hear and my body trembles. I can't function. He says, yet I will wait on you, Lord. In chapter two, verse one, he had said, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself in my tower. And in his arrogance, he said, I'm gonna look out and see what God's gonna say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint to God. But by chapter three, he is saying, I will trust the promises of God even though it bring calamity to me. He went from waiting on the Lord's answer to waiting on the Lord's salvation. Listen, I can't as a, as a preacher, and a lot of preachers try to do this, I can't as a preacher make your problems go away. 
I can't give you some formula that makes your life easy, but I can place your hope in something than just conquering your immediate circumstances. I can lift your eyes to a cross and lift your eyes to an empty tomb that gives you so much more hope than just paying the next bill or getting through the next trial. And this is what Habakkuk saw by the end of his vision. And I love that this comes up over and over in the Bible. Right, My mind goes to Job. You remember all the bad stuff that happened to Job? Job lost everything. And one of the famous quotes of Job in, in, in the book of Job is he says, though he slay me, speaking about the Lord, even though the Lord himself would come down and kill me, he says, yet I will hope in him. I think of those boys in Babylon shortly after, historically, what we're reading today, after their exile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they go and as they're threatened with being murdered and thrown into a fiery furnace for not worshiping false idols, they say, our God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But then they add this caveat, but if he doesn't, we still won't worship your false gods. Habakkuk has a similar sentiment and a commitment to the Lord in verse 17 and 18. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And that Commitment became a song of hope for the people of Israel in exile. That as they looked around and saw everything bad, they were able to say, even though everything seems bleak, we will still hope in our God. We will rejoice in the Yesha, the salvation of the Lord. Even though there's war going on, even though my world is falling apart, even though gas prices might be really high, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what did David say? Not Coolio, David. I will fear no evil. Coolio said it too. He was quoting Psalms. Though everything around me fall apart, this is the sentiment you're to have, Christian. Though everything fall apart, you take joy in the God who has saved you through a cross and an empty tomb. Habakkuk went from complaining to contentment. And I think maybe, just maybe, this might be the point of God allowing us to go through some of the mess that we go through. That he would just mold our souls to be ready for eternity and moving from complaining about it to being content with it and trusting him fully. Because most of us don't arrive at contentment until we've had some times where we feel like complaining. And Habakkuk ends his prophecy and vision like this. He says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Again, this became a hope song of Israel that as they were carried away as prisoners of war, they could sing of God's faithfulness in the past, trust in his faithfulness for their present, and be confident that he was sending an anointed one, a Messiah, to ultimately be their salvation. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.